Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well today. That's if you are, that's saying something because we do have a lot of sickness going around, and I've I've heard it from all kinds of directions. So if you're watching online and and still sick, thank you for staying home today. But I uh, hope you get well and come back uh, healthy. Uh, we're we're jumping into Romans three uh, this week. And the overall theme of the message of God's faithfulness, we're going to look at for two weeks, uh, at, at least. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 4. But I want to read verses one, 1 through 8 today, just so that we understand the whole context of this one section that we're going to be working through. So if you would, stand with me to your feet in reverence for God's word this morning. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if your unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Lord, We thank you for letting us gather here today, either um, through technology or in person. Lord, we have much to learn today about your faithfulness. We have much to be reminded of about our unfaithfulness. And so, Lord, may we be humbled by one and encouraged by the other today. You give us what we need, even if we don't know it. Open the eyes of the blind today so that we may be, we see and be healed and do what you've created us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I ask you a question, what's the worst pain that you ever felt in your life? What would be the first thing that popped in your head? Now, This may say something about my upbringing or my past, and that's okay. We all have one. Uh, Any of you got ever had had a good beating? I'm not talking about your parents giving you a biblical spanking. (laughs) I'm talking about I'm talking about getting in a scrap where where you got the hound beat out of you. Anybody? Yeah, there's a couple of you shaking your hand. I I have. I've been beat with an inch of my life. But that pales to comparison. And I would not list that if you said, what's the worst pain in your life? 
it would immediately I would go to someone that I loved, someone that I trusted, someone that I poured my life into, and I and all of a sudden there was a, a emotional knife in the back, and they left, gone. Talked bad about me. We see it all the time in the life of the church. I'll come back to that at the end. And it's always the same thing. Before people leave, they shake the tree and dislodge as many people as they can before they leave. I mean, what's up with that? But that, this breaking of trust, is the worst pain that most of us have ever experienced. Last week, it was this issue of security and where we can find it. This week, this issue is trust. These are the core things of life. That's why it hurts so bad when somebody breaks it, too. These are core. Can we find ultimate security in man? We looked at that last week. It's what he's been trying to teach us with this doctrine of man in chapters 1 and 2. <laughs> it's an easy answer when you've lived a little bit of life. Right? Can we experience in this life someone who is unfailingly trustworthy. People, all people, are notoriously unstable and untrustworthy. The teaching has been clear. If we've missed it, you need to go back and listen to it. That both the Gentiles are not the only people who have a problem before God. But the Jews have a problem, and this comes to almost seemingly to their surprise because they feel like they have been, and they're true. They have been granted such privileges. You remember what those privileges were? The law, the covenant, and circumcision. And what we have learned is Though those things are wonderful privileges, it only served to raise their responsibility, but it did not give them a leg up spiritually with God. And so this news to the Jews causes questions. You know, when somebody ever challenges you something that you've held dear, maybe most of your life, I've thought about some doctrines years ago that the, that the Lord just kick the leg right out from underneath the stool it just throws you all out of, out of whack and here's what comes next the questions so he's got some and that's what we're going to look at the outlines this week and next week are just the questions first question we're going to look at today is what's the use of being a Jew then if it don't give me a leg up you know if I'm not guaranteed a spot I mean man what's the point Here's another one. Will God be faithful even if we're not? Maybe we can say, will God be faithful even if they are not? Here's here's what we're going to look at next week, but let's go ahead and think about the questions. If God's purpose is still accomplished through our sinfulness, is God unfair because he holds us accountable for it? And then finally, well then if God's going to accomplish his purpose, even in the midst of my sinfulness, even in the midst of my unfaithfulness, then, man, I need to be a great sinner. But let's just 
sit down and have a cup of coffee, this proverbial cup of coffee that Paul is like he's having with somebody today. That's sort of the context you need to have in your mind. He's writing a letter, but he's presuming these questions that someone would have. And as we sip our coffee and that person says, Paul, if you're right, what's the use of being a Jew anyway? And so let's look at verse 1. He says, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? And so what I want to look at, these are the same question, just couched in different ways, just trying to be, he's trying to be clear with the question that he believes someone is asking in their mind based off what they've been taking in over the first two chapters. And I want you to, to cue into two words. First word is advantage, the second word is value. Advantage. What advantage? That word means special privilege. What special privilege is there from being a Jew then? What, what is exceptional? What is excellent? It can even mean super abundant. Thinking about the quantity of this privilege. But what Paul, and I think this is helpful, what he is helping them over this next chapter to understand is this. What saving advantage is there to being a Jew? So there's two questions. What is, is there an advantage to being a Jew? And is there a saving advantage to being a Jew? Those are two distinct questions. Amen? So what special privilege does it... What, the, what they're upset about, what they're thrown off by, is that their doctrine, that which they had staked their, not only their life on, but their eternity on, was that being a Jew grants them access to the eternal kingdom of God. And he just said that's not true. I mean, hello, talking about something that'll mess you up. I mean, if physical circumcision or... The fact that we can trace our lineage to Abraham doesn't guarantee us heavenly blessing. Then what in the world can? You saying we're no better off than the pagans? Then he uses this word value. Then what value is of circumcision? Now, that word just means benefit or profit. What does it profit then that we were circumcised anyway? But see, here's what he's asking. Is there any saving power in circumcision? That's what he wants them to ask. Uh, see, sometimes we ask the wrong questions. I love that about Jesus. And if you look at his teaching, he always turns around and asks you a question. What he's trying to say is, you're not asking the right questions. There's a, there's a first question before the second question. But here is, you could almost say, based off what we've already studied in the first couple chapters, especially chapter 2, you would, you would almost expect Paul to say, no, there's no advantage, no profit, no value, no use. That's not what he says. In verse 2 he says, much in every way. And what he's going to deal with today is just one. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So turn with me to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Chapter 7. 
just want you to see both the privilege and the value of being a Jew. The Bible doesn't teach what it doesn't say can mean what it doesn't say. What does it say? Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Verse 9. Now therefore... Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. There was, do you see it? Both great privilege and great responsibility to be the people of God. God's word is clear. By the way, that's how you test a principle. A principle is only true if it's true everywhere. So if someone says that's a principle, you sort of put that up in the shelf of your mind and as you study God's word, you're sitting there going, oh, that ain't true right there. Well, that's not true. But here's the question. Turn back with me now to Romans 3. Seems like Paul's contradicting himself. Romans 3. Look at verse 9. So remember what we just read. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? And Paul says what? Plenty of advantage to being a Jew. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews better off? What does he say? No, not at all. So when you read something that seems to be contradictory, it's your understanding that's off, not the Bible's. But if you understand this, this is the issue of is there, a, is, there a, is there an advantage? Yes. Is there a saving advantage? Does being a Jew just means God just winks at their sin? No need for Jesus for the Jewish people. They're going to get in anyway. And there's some blasphemous doctrines out there that teach that. Did being a Jew afford them privileges? Yes. Did it give them an eternal spiritual leg up with God? No. Why not? Because they had sin and everybody has it and God's got to deal with it. Because if you could look down in the core of who God is, down into the dirt, into the soul of God, to see what is His, His very essence, you will see holy, holy, holy. God's got to deal with sin. He's got to deal with yours, and He's going to deal with the Jews. And the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility to the Jew first, and then everybody else.
You see, the great privilege that he begins with here in verse 2 is that they were entrusted with something. What were they entrusted with? What does it say? The oracles of God. It's quite a word, isn't it? First, understand that they have been entrusted. It's where we get this word of being a steward. Isn't actually yours. It's not your possession. It is somebody else's. And they hand it to you. They entrust it with you. Now it becomes your what? Responsibility. Because it was entrusted to you. And you're a steward of it. To use it the way the owner intended it to be used. So they were entrusted with something. What was it? The oracles of God. Now it's absolutely true he could have in mind all of Scripture. But based off the context, it seems like even more specifically, we'll see that in a little bit, that he's thinking about the promises of God for salvation has been given to you. They were Jewish people. The, the understanding of what it means how someone would enter the kingdom of God has already been entrusted to you and nobody else. That's quite a privilege. Psalms 147 verse 19 says this, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. God gave some things to the Jewish people. He gave to nobody else in the, in the Old Testament. And so he could go back now into a whole laundry list. And I want you to see that this is not the only one. And I want you to show that, that, that Paul's going somewhere with this argument. He'll come back to this argument in Romans 9. So flip over with me to Romans 9. I want to sort of bait you for what's coming I don't, know, I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming in the future. If Jesus doesn't come back before we get to Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 3. It says, For I wish that I myself were accursed, damned, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To him belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. A lot of privilege. A lot of privilege. But listen, all that privilege, no guarantee of salvation. Disobedience destroys neither privilege, responsibility, nor God's faithfulness. Paul wants to upset their thinking that the, that the disobedience of the Jews have no, no, causes no problem with, between them and God. He's saying nothing can be further from the truth. You still have privilege. And you still have a responsibility, but your disobedience and your sin has to be dealt with. 
Paul then presumes another question is coming right after that. Well, if, if we've been entrusted with this and, and we've been unfaithful with it, will God be faithful even though we're not? It's a big question. I think whether you realize it or not, that's a question in your mind, many of our minds. Look at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Verse 4. By no means let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The Jews' unfaithfulness does not have the ability to destroy God's faithfulness. But what it does teach us is that man's is untrustworthy. By man, I mean everybody. Everybody. Now the Jews now, and I know this is hard for us as individualistic Americans who only think about our own little personal salvation, but for the Jews, they would be more thinking nationally than individually. And I know that's a stretch for us to think that way, but that's what they thought. They, Jews were a communal people that thought communally about things. I once knew a man in a place far, far away. That means it wasn't around here anytime, anytime soon. Whose wife cheated on him very early on in his marriage. It's a real story, though. Everybody thought he forgave her. They had multiple children, don't remember how many. Twenty years later, when their children graduated from moved out of the house I can't remember what it was high school probably college and, and moved out and got married he filed for divorce and he left his wife and he never looked back and like we were all sitting there going what happened? she trusts is sacred it's hard to build easy to lose and that trust had never been Repaired. The, the, the hurt had turned into anger. The anger had turned into bitterness. And destruction is the result. In his own life and in the life of his own family. Let me show you the, why we are somehow sometimes trustworthy and sometimes untrustworthy. Go to James. You know, good old James. James has always got a word application in our, for us. James chapter 1, verse 14. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. You see the pattern there? We're all tempted. But this is the issue of desire. When that desire gives into it, 
our family tries to gather um, as much as we can to celebrate we did to decorate our house for Christmas we did that last night and uh, my oldest daughter Laura is is a strength trainer and she's um, she's passionate about nutrition and while we were sitting around she was telling us that much of the fast food that we have has chemicals in it that causes to some degree and in some form some kind of dependency in other words it creates a desire it tempts us and then we begin to have that desire for sitting there going because you know it's true nothing tastes like that chick-fil-a sandwich right if you get yes right if you if you want one don't go to KFC. I'm sorry. They try, to, they try to have a chicken sandwich that matches it. It's just not a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, is it? It's just, it, we can think that's silly, but in, to a great degree, that's exactly what, why we are so undependable. Because we are oftentimes moved by our... We are always... Let me, let me correct myself. We are always moved by our greatest desire. We are absolutely responsible for that. We have no right to blame God for us choosing what our greatest desire wanted to start with. We wanted that Chick-fil-A sandwich, and you can put anything in its place, it's still true. But also, sometimes, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, let me just read it to you. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is, con- that, that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So just because you're tempted doesn't mean and you have a desire doesn't mean you have to fall into it. God says, I'm going to provide a way of escape. Not an easy escape, but a way of escape. So sometimes we fall into it. Sometimes we stand firm. And one day I'm good, the other day I'm not. How would you like to have a God like that? 1 John 1, 9. And you're glad this verse is in the Bible. It's just to believers. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness or we could say from all of our unfaithfulness our untrustworthiness if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us oh we sin (laughs) we sin well but listen God is unchangeably faithful him alone passage we read while we were singing is was in 2 Timothy 2.10 you remember it? I'm so glad that he, they, they grabbed verse 10 because this is the issue of endurance your endurance of standing firm and to reflect your God rightly has an effect an impact on the salvation of others but don't you think for a minute that you can change the plans of God what he's saying is for we need to get our context right therefore I endure verse 10 2 Timothy 2 therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect whatever and you need to read above that to see what he's talking about 
that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign. But if we deny Him, He's going to deny you. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Your disobedience doesn't change the faithful of God one drop. It doesn't change His plans one drop. It doesn't diminish His glory one drop. And so Paul assumes this question, and then he bursts out with an exclamation point in verse 3 and says, can we somehow diminish God's faithfulness because of our unfaithfulness? He says, not on your life. Not at all. Do you remember David? Who picked David to be the king? God did. He was God's king. It wasn't like Saul. <laughs> he was David, a man after God's own heart. Yet, what was in his past? Adultery, murder. And who exactly did he murder? Yeah. And who was Bathsheba's husband? If it was not somebody that had his trust, his tight, one of his mighty men, there was no tighter trust than that, than the person you're in the ditch fighting with, right? Had his life, he wouldn't betray his honor. David killed him. This is the question. Does this mean that somehow because David sinned, God is less glorious. He is less faithful just because David failed his God, failed his country, failed his friends, and failed his people. The Bible says, no. What does David say? Psalms 51. It's David's repentance for that. Psalms 51, 4. Let's look at verse 3. Psalms 51, 3 and 4. Says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I sinned, and my sin was ultimately against you. But God's punishment and His judgment, listen, proves His faithfulness. God doesn't wink. Go with me in, to Romans 9 one more time. I want to get you excited about Romans 9. Romans 9 is going to be a good place where we ever get to it. Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though... I'm in Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now listen to what he's saying. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named... This means that it is not the children of the flesh 
who are the children of God, but the children of promise that are counted as offspring. Now, I didn't say it, and I didn't write it. That's what God's Word says. The one that received the promised seed by faith, they and they only are the children of God and heirs according to the promise. If you don't come by way of the seed, capital S, you are lost and without God and without hope in this world. They and they only, that offspring that comes out of that seed, that enters in only by faith, have assurance. None of them. The fact is what he's getting at. The fact that the Jewish people by the flesh rejected their Messiah does not prevent God's plan to gather the children of God into one family called the church. Remember, it's not the blood of Abraham that matters. It's the faith of Abraham that eternally counts. So God's judgment on both Jews and Gentiles simply proves his faithfulness. Paul adds a statement in here in verse 4. Do you see it? Let God be true even though everyone is a liar. That's the way it feels sometimes, doesn't it? You know, it's like, like, who in the world can we trust around here? Who do I vote for? I don't know. They're all liars, right? Psalms 116, and we're going to stay in Psalms 116 uh, all the way into the uh, application. Verse 5, Psalms 116, verse 5. It says, Gracious is the Lord, and righteous our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Both is true. The greatest truth in all the world is not the hope that we place in people. It is the hope that we have that our God has never failed on you, not even once. So what today? I, wanna, I wanted to try to get done in time to, to deal with some issues that I think that are important in your life and mine, to bring this point to a clear point of application. We just have to understand before we move beyond this message if there's anything else that you're trusting in, like the Jews were trusting in. Tradition is not bad. Liturgy is not bad. Whatever it is, it's not bad. But if we are trusting in it as a means for us to inherit eternal life, we're dead wrong. Faith in Christ is the only thing that can bring us before a holy God. So, I just asked a couple of questions. What, I'm going to ask it two ways. What advantage is there to being a church member? 
I would say this, plenty. Spiritually, physically, emotionally. I could just give you a couple. It gives you a context for reading most of the New Testament. If you're reading most of the New Testament and you're not part of a local church, you're simply reading somebody else's mail. Because you don't have a place that is holding you accountable for anything that Paul is teaching us right now. And you become your own accountability partner. God has one bride. And it's not some group that you join that you do some steps. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying it ain't the church. It's not the church. There's only one bride. There's only one Christ that died for his people. And nobody else did. And you trust in that thing to make you right before God. It will lead you nowhere. You can go to hell drunk and you can go to hell sober. What saving advantage is there to be a church member? Not a bit. A lot of church members are going to stand up on that day and God says, I never knew who you were. What value is baptism in the Lord's Supper? Plenty. Amen? God gave it to us. It is a display of trust-filled obedience to Jesus. If you have put repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized, I'm asking the question, why have you not taken the first step of what God has called you to do? I mean, what's up with that? It is in the baptism, it is in the Lord's Supper that we take every week that we commune not only with Christ, but with each other. It's where grace is. It is where we are reminded. It's where we are renewed. It is where we renew ourselves again to remember that the work is finished and my life exists for Him. But what saving value is baptism? What saving value is the Lord's Supper? None at all. Listen, if somebody needs to hear this, you need to hear this. Bapti baptismal regeneration is a heresy. We repent and we put our faith in Christ. And as a result, we stand up and declare to the world, the old is gone, the new has come. Come what may, I'm with him. But I got a bigger question. Have I quit on God because of man's unfaithfulness? Important question. I don't know that I've had more of an important question over the last 10 years of ministry. It's in Kings Mountain. Why don't you come to church? Because some church or some pastor or some deacon or some leader has hurt me. Has church hurt driven you from your faithful God? Have you effectively spiritually quit Listen, I wasn't going to say this is not in my notes, but I have to wonder when people stop being generous to God if they have spiritually quit on God. Because if you spiritually quit on His church, who exactly have you quit on? We can spiritually quit. Some of us still won't serve God in any capacity because we think that Jesus' salvation is not enough to forgive us of our past. We're still holding on to it. You can actually quit on God. You can spiritually quit on God 
But for many in my experience, they're not here today. And they're most likely, unless God does a work in their life, not coming. It's because someone who claimed the name of Christ broke their trust. Some ambassador failed to represent Christ rightly. Some Christian blew it, or some so-called Christian blew it. And maybe that was you that blew it. So if you still got Psalms 116, I just want to point out some things and draw this to a close. Psalms 116, let's begin with verse 11 because I think that's an important place to begin with. How do we deal with this? If the greatest hurt in our life that we said in the beginning came from within the body of Christ. By the way, it was where I would name mine. So how do we deal with this? Psalms 116 verse 11 says, In my anxiety I cried out to you, These people are all liars. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, by the way. Love it here. It's so clear. So, first step. We need to be honest with God about this. Lord, I don't understand how people who can call your name, who get up in the morning and read this book, can conspire and hurt and connive. Don't get it, God. How does that work exactly? Where is the Spirit of God convicting, enlightening them? I, I don't get it, God. Right? Can't we just be honest with God? Verse 12. Not even a pause. What can I offer the Lord for all He has done for me? See? You got both. And listen, if you don't hold both, you can't, get, you can't heal. You'll get stuck in the mud spiritually, emotionally. God has been good to me. Do you know how much grace He has poured out in your families? In your marriages and with your children? So, verse 13, he says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and praise the Lord's name for saving me. I will keep my promises to the Lord. And listen, I will keep them in the presence of all his people. I will remember who saved me. And I'm going to keep on walking in a manner worthy of the one who called me. And I will not quit on his people because somebody was unfaithful to me because God has not been unfaithful to me don't connect that that is blame shifting is only hurting yourself I love the fact he puts verse 15 here because he gives us a whole other context for application the Lord cares deeply when his loved ones die Some of us are mad at God for taking one of his own kids home. Listen, that's our destiny. And God appoints our day. 
I don't know how long I'm going to live. It's not on me to, to worry about those things. It is on me to walk in a manner worthy of the calling he has put on my life and let God be God and take us home whenever he feels like it. Because, why? Because he cares deeply for that person who died in your life. It's a powerful promise. So, man's unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithful goodness in your life or in this world. Man's unfaithfulness does not nullify your privilege physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Nullify. Man's unfaithfulness does not nullify your responsibility to forgive as you are forgiven, to love as you are loved, to represent, listen, to represent Christ better than someone represented Him to you. And listen, man's unfaithfulness does not for one second nullify God's glory. We owe it to Him, but we can't diminish it. Amen? The Lord is calling some of us here in this room and watching on on your phones and computers right now to repent for blame shifting our sin on the faithfulness of God listen entrust unfaithful people to God he knows how to deal with them and I don't and so I don't <laughs> not going to hold that I'm sorry I'm just going to slide them over to the almighty and let him deal with his own kids or not, I don't know. All I know is looking at the fruit hanging on the tree. And I slide him over. And I keep trusting him and walking in a way worthy of my calling. And you must do the same. Philippians 1.27. We'll close with this. Above all, we must live as citizens of heaven. Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. My encouragement to you before I pray is this. Don't let this message grow cold before you deal with this. The Holy Spirit's telling some of us we got things with God and things with other people that need to be dealt with. Don't let the evil one or your own flesh snatch the truth of this message away from you. To this we have been called. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. And so, Lord, now just simply, we just want to sing about it. We want to enjoy it. And yes, Lord, we want to experience it. In our bodies, and our minds, our emotions, and our spirit, we are a unity that you created. So God, I pray that if we need to exercise 1 John 1, 9 right now in our own individual lives and souls and spirits and minds, we would right now. That we have the ability because of the finished work of your Son to right now where we sit. We don't need a priest or a preacher. We need only to call on you in the name of your Son. And that you said if we confess our sins, you would forgive us. And so, Lord, we take this moment 
to confess it by name. We call it what it is. And we take responsibility for it. We bring it to the only one who can deal with it. Who can forgive us our sins and to restore us once more to you. So Lord, we call out to Jesus right now. Lord, forgive us through your Son for blaming you for the unfaithfulness of other people. We pray for those other people. Pray for them, God. It's miserable to walk against you and and it's dangerous to hurt your people. So God, we pray for them that you would bring forgiveness and mercy in their life. Lord, we understand the wrath, your wrath, and we don't want anybody to experience it. So, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, even while we pray, we pray for the mercy and the souls of those who blaspheme your name and hurt your children all over the world, that they might be saved. Because today is the day of salvation. But God, for us, we now have been prayed for forgiveness, stand cleansed because of the power and blood of Jesus Christ to declare to you first and only and then to each other the grace and the goodness of God in our lives and in this church and in your community and in this world. So may our voices heard, may we be heard and, and rejoiced in today as we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.